0: Hello and welcome to Bonnet's at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host Lauren Burke and I am your host Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are taking you behind the scenes at Chotten House for their Man Up exhibition. Now, longtime listeners will remember our first trip to Chotten House, which was season two, episode 18. But this time around, we have something a little different for you. We are going to kick things off with an interview from Katie Childs, who is the chief executive of Chotten House. And then we are going to take you on an exhibition tour with Cleo O'Sullivan, the curator of Man Up.
1: That's right. In early March, Sam and I hopped in the car and made our way to Alton to see the recently rehung Chawton House and the exhibition. And little did we know that this was going to be our last trip before (laughs) lockdown. The very last time. (laughs) Uh, I always, always, always love a visit to Chawton House because there's this like magical quality You get taken all over the property. Whenever we do an interview, it's in a different room. You pass grand fireplaces and climb beautifully carved creaking staircases and sneak into wood panelled rooms and the sun just spills through the ironwork of the windows. There's always something to look at. There's art on the walls, there's books and cabinets and the staff are really friendly. So I think it's one of my favourite places. Lauren, it's one of yours too, right?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm very jealous that you got to go there and march without (laughs) me. (laughs) I think as well, there's always
1: this like feeling of industry and preservation Mm -hmm. and everyone's just always hustling and getting stuff done. It just seems like a great place to work.
2: Um, Hello, I'm Katie Childs and I'm the chief executive of Chawton House, um, which is where we are today in the billiards room at Chawton House, Um, and my job here is just to oversee and manage the whole of the house, the library um, as well as the gardens and the estate as well.
1: Great, and we are going to talk about all of the exciting stuff that you've got coming up. Uh, it's
2: International Women's Day. Is it today? It is, yes. Today. We well, are in Shorten House on International <laughs> Women's Day and the house is full of visitors, it's fantastic. It's so busy, I was yes. really
1: surprised.
2: Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so what's going on? What What have the people come to see? Well, we've just reopened. We reopened on Monday for the 2020 season. Um, and that's us open now right until the end of the year. Um, we have spent the last six weeks um, doing about ten different projects Um, which have all kind of interwoven with each other but the two big ones um, have been a complete re-presentation of the house, Um, so new interpretation um, on several different levels. We've created new women writers galleries um, upstairs on the first floor um, and that's because downstairs um, we tell a much clearer, less cluttered story. Um, about what is Chawton House, who are the Knight family who have lived here since 1572, who have owned Chawton House since 1572, Um, what's the connection to Jane Austen um, and how familiar she was with the estates and the family um, that followed uh, Edward and Jane's generation. Um, So we talk about them for the first time and now you've come upstairs and there's still the beautiful Melichamp picture of Chawton um, where it was at the top of the stairs um, and the map of London but we've brought out uh, other maps that are in our collection and have not been on public display before. Go through the special exhibition and then beautiful women writers galleries which show those portraits off um, in a way that we weren't able to do before but unites them with the story of the house and, uh, and some of the collection um, and the library as well. Um, so we've done that, at the same time we've put in two new temporary displays, the so one in the Library about Conservation project which has just finished, our volunteers have spent the last four years wow. conserving every single book in our collection. I think they were a, in the process of doing that when we yeah, came to visit the first time. Like yeah, something like 16,000 books, it's extraordinary, it really is, They've got, also they've got nerves of steel to do it, so yeah, I'm <laughs> not sure I would have the, the nerve to, um, to fix the pages and the book bindings. Um, so that's down in the library. Um, our new curator Emma has done a display about Emma, uh, not her, yeah. the book, <laughs> uh, all about Emma to coincide with the film. Um, and then the big uh, project is our new special exhibition, uh, "Man Up: Women Who Stepped Into a Man's World," and that takes in uh, t- takes up the whole space of our special exhibition room and is absolutely brilliant.
1: And I'm so excited. Yes. Yeah.
2: The minute the minute Lauren is like, "Oh, this exhibition's
1: on. You might be interested." And then it's <laughs> like described what it was, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, Sound like can go. That's fine. We'll we'll get down there." It is. Yeah. I know you're
2: going to talk to Cleo, but it is. It does for me i've been here a year um i started almost exactly um this weekend last year oh, and, congratulations um, on your <laughs> anniversary <laughs> One year. i didn't realize the precise day until i yeah. was still doing our volunteers briefing and i thought hold on i remember doing this last year so it was <laughs> the and then worked it out it was exactly the same day um it, so but that exhibition does like the rehang does everything that we wanted to do which yeah. is to tell to tell the Chawton house story um to uh, do so in a way that is it's informative, but it's a lot of fun as yeah. well. Um, it take it's ambitious. The exhibition has um, some really fabulous loans, and um, from all sorts of different organisations. And um, but it also tackles a really serious subject as well. Yeah. So it's and to be able to do all of those is is fantastic, and to see the house full of people is yeah lovely fabulous it's yeah. fantastic and there, there's been similar work out in the gardens as well too, um to so that the house and garden starts to, to be To to have a relationship between the two and the visitors kind of visit the house and then go out into the gardens, and the story continues. And there's a tea room? There's a tea room. tea room was absolutely full when I came out. (laughs) That's cake. That's cake in the tea room. I mean, we sell some quantity of Victoria's Bunch. Really? Yeah, and all sorts of different versions of Victoria's Bunch. That really surprised me, but I really like Enya's. Enya's our cook. She's fabulous. Um, She makes a Maltese tiffin. Oh, wow. And that is oh that is just so nice it's so it's so bad for you but it's so nice um and her sausage rolls are pretty good as well so. I do you love a sausage roll i know it's quite dangerous having a tea room <laughs> that
1: close
3: so <laughs> it's in the nervous. last
1: in the last year yeah it's like it's been a busy year there's yeah there's been lots going on it's your first year what's been the most interesting thing just like one thing that's happened or like one item that you have found or project that you've worked on that's particularly stood out for you
2: i think certainly being able to rehang the house yeah um and because that really encapsulates lots of other things that we were trying to do we want to make the collection more um tell the stories in a, in a really engaging way but that it's and as i said in a way that's kind of fun that uh, works for younger audiences as well as adults um, and allows us to do all sorts of events and things like that but it just looks beautiful as well and yeah. uses it it's a really resourceful rehang we've reused um sort of furniture and repurposed things um which is entirely in keeping with the history of the house but it's so the whole thing sort of brings together all sorts of different things that we wanted to that we wanted to do and seeing it we did a, a reopening party on Tuesday yeah. and seeing that and seeing how people enjoyed it that was I was like okay that's that's a year well spent um but it is it's just been one of lots and lots of things but it's it it just sort of summed everything up really I think
1: then I descended into the heart of the house to listen to an introductory talk from the amazing Cleo O'Sullivan and I'll say that one thing to note about Cleo is that she bloody loves dressing up and she turned up to this wearing a tricorn hat, she had a sword in her belt, she had her pirate's jacket on and if you look on her Instagram just always in a costume and I can really relate to always wanting to be in character, I guess. <laughs> More interesting is-
3: Ready to start. Welcome everyone to Chawton House on International Women's Day. We're so pleased to see you all here. Um, Cleo is going to join us shortly and she will tell you about our current exhibition, Man Up. Um, You may have had a look at it already, but we're going to have a good look at it after the talk, so don't worry if you haven't seen it yet. A little bit of housekeeping Um, we're not expecting any fire alarms today, so if you hear one, definitely do leave the building as quickly as possible um, you can go down the stairwell that we just came up that's your nearest exit and then there's the next exit um, past the tea room um, but we will lead you there if we need to <laughs> um, if you need the toilets again step that way down to the tea room um, as well um, so without further ado i'll bring Cleo in hello hello Happy International Women's Day, so thrilled that you can all be here, um, we're very excited about this exhibition and this is the first uh, exhibition that I've ever curated, so in particular I'm really pleased about it, um, mainly any point of our exhibition is to bring hidden histories of these forgotten women to life really, and we try to focus it in quite an interesting and eye-catching way. So particularly focusing on women who i felt were stepping into a man's world so hence the title man up and um where it really begins for me is with this quote here every woman is at heart a rake just to give you some context this was my mood board at the beginning so (laughs) it's um, a little bit of a mess but it's because anything that i felt could be relevant i just chucked onto the board here so the scandalous Lady W here when she sort of dresses up in her um, military uniform. She doesn't feature in it, but she's just really cool. So <laughs> she's on there. So yes, this this um, quotation, every woman is at heart a rake. So rake is in rogue, not rake as in garden utensil. I just really, really found it very striking Um, and it all began with um, a chapbook which we have in our collection and it's really small and really beautiful and it's on display upstairs and it's about Betsy Warwick it's a fictional take on it and chapbooks were just really popular in the 18th and 19th century they were sort of two penny books that anyone could pick up so within these small books they're they're not high voluting literature it's sort of fun adventure stories so Betsy Warwick. um, This is her here, and that's where the quote, Men some to business, some to pleasure take, but every woman is at heart a rake. And here she is in her male clothing over her lover, who she believes has been killed in a duel. And I just found it a very compelling story about um, this 18th century woman. She's put into a nunnery against her will, and she manages to escape by donning male clothing. And I sort of thought, how many other stories are there of this kind in a literal and metaphorical sense? So the exhibition has been themed into different professions, as it were. So the exhibition begins with soldiering. So the army over there, that side, but it sort of combines with the Navy because the two women that I focus on, one is Hannah Snell, this is Hannah Snell there and this is her in her regimentals so she joined the Navy um, and she was shot in the line of fire and she relates a story about how uh, she was shot in the groin and obviously no one could discover that she was a woman so she had to take the shrapnel out herself she writes her own account so whether she dramatizes it is up for grabs really Um, but Hannah Snell here as you can see is in her guy's um, performing a military drill. So after her time in the army, she came back and made a name for herself on the stage. People were really taken with this story of the successful female soldier who fought bravely and got a pension from the Royal Chelsea Hospital as a result of it. Um, before I move on, I'll point out the exhibition logo here. So one half is of Hannah Snell in her regimentals. The other half is of Charlotte Chark. So, this is the original image here. Charlotte Chark was an um, actress who took on the breeches roles, which um, was very popular in the 18th century because the 18th century, the Georgian crowd, they loved this idea of masquerade and disguise. So, women taking on these Shakespearean roles of, say, Viola in Twelfth Night was really, really popular. Um, But Charlotte Chark lived a lot of her life dressed up as a man and actually managed her own theatre company, was the first woman to do it by herself. But I melded these two together to create our own image because it was inspired by this image here. This um, is the Chevalier d'Eon and the Chevalier was a French spy who lived several years as a man, um, sorry, as a woman, Uh, was born a man, lived several years as a woman to sort of help with the disguise and masquerade of it. And originally, um, this was the logo of the exhibition. However, um, it's kind of the wrong way around because it's a man living as a woman and then to have quite an aggressive man up next to someone who lived as a woman might sort of give off the wrong signals. And so then we created our own exhibition and meant we didn't have to pay for copyrights. Well. So <laughs> there were many, many reasons why we did that. So moving on from the military section, We then get to dueling, so women who duel. And I focus a lot on Betsy Warwick, of course, Um, but I also focus on uh, Belinda. So Belinda is Mariah Edgeworth's quite moral tale. Belinda's a contemporary of Jane Austen, a little bit ahead of her. Um, Jane Austen's a huge fan of hers, and uh, Edgeworth even reviewed some of Austen's work, so she was kind of aware of her, but way, way more famous than Austen, so they probably all be quite aghast that it's Austen who survived and not Edgeworth in terms of fame. But in Belinda, surprisingly, um, there's a sort of cross-dressing subplot. Lady Delacour is this sort of dazzling, dazzling socialite and she gets into a bit of a troublesome duel. She has a friend uh, who is the villain of the text. She's subtly called Harriet Freak, so Edgeworth is making a comment on her um, misbehaviour and she gets into a cross dressed jewel but her pistol backfires onto her, so it's making a comment about dabbling with masculinity when she should be staying in her sphere of femininity. So the first half of the exhibition is looking at women who are dressing up but sort of manning up in a more literal sense and being a bit more violent about it. So we're also including pirates, as you can see down underneath the candles here and we focus on the two most famous female pirates from the golden age of piracy and that's Anne Bonny and Mary Read and just looking at different interpretations of them really and how their image has been shaped by the 18th century. So moving on into the second half of the exhibition, uh, this is where we're still talking about women entering a male-dominated world but uh, doing it in a less literal sense. So we begin with landowning and the main focus of this part of the exhibition is on Elizabeth Knight who you might have seen her portrait um, outside the dining room passage. Uh, So she was a very very extraordinary woman, a force to be reckoned with really Um, and she's very unusual for her time because she's rich, she's wealthy, she's independent but she's also loving it. She seems to really enjoy this guise of her being a land owning woman. Um, so only one tenth of land in England was owned by women, and she really relishes the part. And her two husbands married one after the other. They both died. Suspicious? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not calling her a murderess. But I'm not, not calling her a murderess. Um, they both had to take her surname. Interestingly, so William Woodward was her cousin. Less weird in those days. Um, he became William Knight. And then her second husband, Bolstrode Peachy, was probably quite pleased to change some of his surname uh, to Peachy, Bolstrode Knight, no no longer Peachy. Um, then we move on to the stage, so acting, and that's when we focus on Charlotte Chark. And really, um, she was such a famous woman in her day, and she has sort of fallen somewhat into obscurity. Her father was Collie Sibber, who was the great comic actor of the day. He was poet laureate, and he was manager of... Drury Lane Theatre so she had very very famous acting parentage but she sort of was given leave to run wild and very much a free spirit but at the heart of it all her acting was really her craft so she never stopped acting even in her day-to-day life so she takes on this guise as Mr Brown and saunters about London town. And the next part of our exhibition um, was really quite a late addition. I was talking to author sharon wright and i was telling her about this and she said well you're going to include lady aeronauts and i sort of like oh like the film and she's like no not like the film (laughs) (laughs) no they're they're victorian anyway but um she was just telling me about these fantastic ballooning women uh in the late 18th century and they were really part of the vanguard of balloonomania. so i sort of said right well we have to include them then and um When we get upstairs, I'll introduce you to a very, very dear favorite character of mine. Her name is Letitia Ann Sage. She's very relatable because she's sort of supposed to add a new spectacle to the whole endeavor, but somehow manages to step on the barometer and break it. So it turns into a bit of a farce. And I thought, oh, we've all been there, Letitia. Don't (laughs) worry. (laughs) And then the last and largest part of the exhibition is on writing. Obviously we've got our sort of credentials as a women's library so it seemed apposite to have a whole section on writing. So we begin with Mary Wollstonecraft. So we ask the question why might a woman try to disguise her sex when writing and Mary Wollstonecraft really offers the answer there. Uh, She is really really vilified by her contemporaries and especially after her death um, and she's called a hyena in petticoats at one point which I feel is a real attack on her femininity. And we also look at Georges Sand, who was a French writer and we have a portrait of her in our collection so we really had to include her but interestingly Georges Sand was more famous and more successful than Victor Hugo at the time, obviously Victor Hugo who's written Les Mis and found to put the Opera so maybe if Andrew Lloyd Webber had picked one of her books to make <laughs> it a musical we'd know who she was and then we end on the Brontes uh, who famously wrote under the pen names Currer, Acton and Ellis Bell and people sort of assume that that's male names but really they're not names at all, they're just androgynous names because they want the quality and calibre of their work to be judged on their work alone, not on their gender. And we're very fortunate, Um, we've got some objects on loan to us from the Bronte Parsonage which we're really excited about, including this, this is sort of zoomed up version, Um, it's a a page taken from Emily Bronte's diary and it's just so evocative, there's just an ink doodle in it and I'll show it to you when we're upstairs properly, but to me it's so evocative of their Rightly, community that the three sisters found themselves in and how important it was Same yeah. <laughs> yeah, always one thing i didn't mention downstairs um the color scheme is very deliberate i went for this quite bold pink because we're talking about these women women um bending gender expectations and especially with the title of man up which especially in our modern sensibilities is tied up a lot with toxic masculinity. But really, I'm not talking about men at all. I'm applying it to these 18th and 19th century women who are forced to um, really just in order to get on. And some of them manage to survive it, and some of them even manage to thrive it. But speaking of survival, there's a game here where one rolls the dice to decide your fate. So if you are in the Navy, in the 18th century. Your prospects aren't good. In fact, I'd say the odds are about 50-50 in the year. So you're fighting in the Revolutionary War, and I'd like someone to volunteer to see what happens Mm. to them. Three. Okay. Oh. Modest pension. That's very useful. I'd actually take that right now. So I read it out, everyone. You retire from the navy and receive a modest pension, enjoying a peaceful existence in the English countryside. Quite nice. That's pretty much what happens to Captain Wentworth. Um, So someone else wants to have a go. Who dares? Two.
1: Oh dear. <laughs> you are attacked by pirates and forced to join their crew. Justice
2: awaits you at the end of a hangman's noose.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <I'm laughs> <not> sorry.
3: <laughs> so as I mentioned downstairs, the um, women soldier the two women soldier that we really focus on are Hannah Snell and Mary Ann Talbot. And there's a lot of similarities between the two of them because they're kind of swept up by circumstances and end up at sea, really. Sort of, not by their choice, by their own choice, but they make the best of what happens to them. Um, I'll begin with Mary and Talbot. poor Mary and Talbot. So this is her in her guise as a man and then down here in this edition you see her guise as a woman, sort of the same face but sort of different um, dressing up, as it were. And she's sort of, Swept along, she's the one who finds herself in the French Revolutionary Wars, and she is shot in the line of fire as well when um, fighting the French at the siege of Valenciennes. Um, and she she returns back home. Obviously, she's um, forced out of the army due to being injured, and she dies in obscurity and poverty. But her account is published after her death, and it's wildly successful. So even though she didn't get to live to see it, she has been a huge source of inspiration to women. And Hannah Snell, she, and here is this, the whole depiction of her in her regimentals. Uh, she made a, quite a huge success for herself on the stage. And this is a first edition, as you'll see. The is still very good. And she actually took to the army to pursue a husband who was ran errant without her. So she borrows her brother-in-law's clothes and takes his name and joins the army and then later she leaves the army and joins the royal navy and that's when she's wounded in battle and has to remove her own bullet and a lot of people ask me how did they get away with it and i'd say that's a very good question and i sort of address it here Um, so when on board ship hannah snell used to go to the loo using a leather horn so that she could hide her gender like an 18th century shiwi Um, And I think at one point in the voyage, they're kind of in the doldrums, they're rationed to one pint of water a day for 17 weeks. And I think if you're going to the loo a lot less then it's easier to hide what you're up to. But Hannah Snell then returns to England and she sees the Duke of Cumberland who was her sort of commanding officer general at the time. And she says to him, I fought in your army, I got wounded. Uh, I demand you give me a pension. And he says, okay then, and gives her 30 pounds a year. But obviously that's not quite enough to sustain your life on, so that's why she makes a name for herself on the stage. And the crowd goes absolutely wild for it, because as I said, the Georgians love this idea of masquerade and pretending to be what you're not, to a degree, anyway. So moving on to pirating, this is a quite famous image of Anne Bonny and Mary Read. It features in Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates, which was allegedly written by Daniel Defoe under a pseudonym Um, but really they're the only women pirates mentioned in this compendium and it just inflates and inflames the senses of the Georgians because they absolutely love the idea. They're titillated but also repulsed with the idea of these women misbehaving so badly because the ocean is kind of a space of otherness. It's the cracks of society really are blasted open and people love to read about it because perhaps they never want to fulfil it themselves personally but they can live it out in a fantasy so the equivalent version of Charles Johnson is this work here and it's called Blagardinia and it's a dictionary of all rogues not just pirates and the page we've got open is on Mary Read and Anne Bonny and There's some debate over whether Anne Bonny and Mary Read were actually pretending to be men. So Hannah Snell and Mary Ann Tolbert, they are pretending to be men because they have to be, whereas the rules don't quite apply so stringently as a pirate. So some people say that they are pretending to be men. Some people say they're not. Um, In this account here, so this is taken from their trial, um, a woman who they attacked whilst aboard a ship um, says that the reason of her knowing and believing them to be women then was by the largeness of their breasts. So they're not hiding it, but they are wearing breeches, more out of practicality, really, because if you're hoisting a rigging, you're gonna do it in breeches, not in voluminous skirts and bone stays. Also, it's so much more expensive to have so many layers of petticoats and clothes. Um, But what really inflamed the senses of the Georgians was the fact that these women were not just swept up with the whole act of piracy, they were committing piracy themselves. So Thomas says that each of them had a machete and pistol in their hands and cursed and swore at the men to murder. So they're they're really acting on their violent impulses. So talking about violent women, we then end this part of the section on duelling. So you'll see here Betsy Warwick lamenting over the loss of her lover. Um, and it's interesting, we had in our collection some codes of duel there, but none of them really mention women, or if they do, it's usually over a woman. But women actually fighting themselves is not mentioned in these works. However, there is historical evidence of women committing duels, such as the pettico- petticoat duel between Lady Almira Braddock and Mrs. L. Fystone. And this was in 1792. And perhaps that was inspiration for Belinda, because Lady Delacour is fighting a a non-titled woman, and things go horribly, horribly wrong. And talking about dueling going horribly wrong, these two accounts of code of duel are quite positive about it. They're sort of giving you useful tips, sort of saying the second has to do this, and you must meet at a certain time and place. And if you want to find out more about the Code of Duel, then we've got some takeaway the rules of dueling in a sort of easy step by step guide for when you next <laughs> get into a fight. <laughs> um, but uh, in uh, Selected Prose, there's an essay on dueling, and this is in a general magazine, and it's talking about the dangers of dueling and how it's a scourge on humanity and civilization and it's absolutely terrible, whereas in contrast in The Code of Dueling, it laments that pistols have overtaken swords in popularity. It's like, oh, pistols are so crude compared Mm to swords. And pistols are really what Lady Delacour's downfall are. She has a pistol misfire when she's in her cross-dressed state, um, cajoled by Harriet Freak and it's, it's a real um, question of immorality when she is neglecting her femininity because it misfires and she has a terrible wound on her chest and she believes that it's a cancerous gross, um, uh, growth so her daughter tries to hug her at one point and she sort of throws her off because she touches her and hurts her so it's a, it's a comment on how as a result of this bad behaviour she's no longer being able to fulfil her role and duty as a wife and a mother. So in this room, we are looking at women who are engaging in things that are not the business of a woman's life. So Robert Salby famously said to Charlotte Bronte, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life and it ought not to be. The more she's engaged in her proper duties, the less her leisure will have for it, even as an accomplishment and a recreation. Well, reader, she ignored him. But before we move on to the Brontes, in fact, that's where we end things. So before we get to there, we will talk about land owning. So this is Elizabeth Knight, and she really is an exceptional woman. I mean, I don't want to be friends with her, but she is amazing. She's quite the character. She has several estates in Hampshire and in Dean and elsewhere. Apparently, every time she arrived at Chawton House, she demanded that the church bells be rung to herald her arrival. And like I said before downstairs, she's, she's not only a landowner, she's powerful, which makes her unusual. What makes her really unusual is the fact that she seems to relish her role as a landowner. She's taking an active interest in managing her estate. So the letter we have on display here, and there's a a facsimile of it at the back, but I'll just read out a little bit to you. She's, She's talking to her steward, and there's been a bit of a windfall in some of the trees, and she's saying to her steward, someone is after these trees, and she's saying, no, these are my trees. So what I want you to do is go immediately to Chawton, cut it out, and carry it off the ground that belongs to farmer Pryor's farm. And if he opposes it, let it be at his peril. I mean, what an amazing thing to say. And she's 24 years old when she's writing this. She really is taking an active business. Um, She has (coughs) an acute eye for it. And at the bottom of the letter, she says, I hope now you have a good market for my bricks. And she underlines it. So she's really not letting him off whatsoever. But also what we have on display is her marriage, her draft marriage settlement to Bostro-Pici. Because being a wife in the 18th century is pretty miserable for you. you are, your legal identity is entirely absorbed into that of your husband under coverture. But she's got all this land and wealth that she doesn't want to have to lose. So she's trying to protect herself legally. And what's interesting about it is it's in her own hand. She's clearly got an acute knowledge of the law and how she can use it to her advantage. So he will own the land as soon as they marry. However, she is negotiating that all the rents, all the money that comes off the land goes directly to her or her trustees. And she's also trying to negotiate to him, I'm in debt of 5,000 pounds, you have to pay it off. And what's remarkable about this particular document is that there are crossings out and additions added onto it. And at some point, clearly, it's been so sort of um, aggressively cut out that the ink gore has actually burnt through the pages and sort of there's um, on another page there's 12 pages worth of it but on another page it gets cut down from 5,000 to 4,000 to 3,000 said like, fine 3,000 I'll pay off 3,000 pounds worth of your debt um, and she also um, makes him sign that he has to take her surname, which he does without that question, because in the 18th century there's less of an issue of men taking women's names, because you just take whoever has the best name. And although Ball Street Peachy is very rich, he is from merchant stock, so Peachy isn't much of a name, as you might have gathered. And also on display here, as part of the Elizabeth Knight section, are keys from the Chawton House estate, sort of dating back from her time. And although Elizabeth Knight would never have deigned to carry her own keys, to me, keys are just so um, symbolic of power and ownership, which is why I wanted to include it. And an interesting thing about Elizabeth Knight, if you want to connect it to Jane Austen, um, Cassandra writes about someone being a right Betty Martin. And if you were a Betty Martin in the Regency and Georgian period, it's someone who's a bit uppity, you know, they're sort of pretending to be better than they are. And I don't know if it is coincidence, but Elizabeth Knight was Elizabeth Martin. And she sort of takes on this surname, becomes very grand, the bells are rung for her. And the phrase has to come from somewhere, so why not come from Betty Martin, who became Elizabeth Knight, very grand and above herself. And connecting it again to Jane Austen, would Jane Austen have known about Elizabeth Knight? And I think it's more than likely she would have because Elizabeth, um, because Jane Austen came up to Chawton House a lot to dine with her family and to see who the tenants were, etc. She would have seen Elizabeth Knight's portrait on the wall. And I think it's not a coincidence that in almost every single one of Jane Austen's novels, there's a matriarch who is in control of her wealth and bossing everyone else around, and usually without a husband as well to tell her what to do. So the most obvious one is Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Yes. <laughs> and fans of Sanditon um, will know Lady Denham has had two husbands. She marries the first for his money, the second for his name and title. But it's interesting because in Sanditon, there's a description of Lady, Lady Denham, and her portrait faces the two of her deceased husbands, much like Elizabeth Knights does downstairs. But also in other Austen novels, there's Mrs Ferris in Sense and Sensibility. She's sort of controlling who can inherit everything. So these women have control over their wealth and are using it. So surely it must have come from Betty Martin, Elizabeth Knight, herself. So if we move on to acting and talk about Charlotte Charles. A really, really extraordinary woman, and here we have on display um, a second edition of her narrative. And when she first published it, she sort of her final profession was as a writer. She had a myriad of professions. She was an actor, and then she was a, a, a stage manager, the first stage manager uh, of her time, um, who was a woman. And she then became a valet to appear, dressing in male clothing. She then became a tavern owner, and later on, a sausage maker. So, I don't know, there's some sort of Freudian idea (coughs) tied with that. But um, her final career was as a writer, and she was notorious herself. She was um, known to gallivant about town, dressed in man's clothes. And her father, of course, was very famous Holly Sibber, who was the um, manager of the Drury Lane Theatre. Um, so it was first published in instalments, and because her autobiography was so popular, it was then collected into one edition. And it's actually the first autobiography written by a woman, so very significant. And here we have a facsimile of The Drury Lane Theatre. Now, Drury Lane is still standing today, however, it's in its fourth iteration because there's been various um, accidents where it's burnt down or refurbishments, etc. So at this point, in the late 18th and early 19th century, when the Drury Lane is at its most popular, uh, there's a crowd of... 3,600 patrons. These are bawdy Jordan, uh, Georgians who are allowed to sort of heckle and take part and throw things. It's not like today, where it's very sedate, sedate affair. So she's performing to crowds of this from a very, very young age. And here, next to the facsimile of Drury Lane Theatre, is a playbill of her in her first show. And this is when her father is still the manager at the Drury Lane. And the next time she play- appeared in the London Merchant, here she is as Lucy. And the next time is uh, in her first ever breeches role as Tra- Tragedio, I think it is. And it's a real family affair actually, because if you look closely, you'll see Mrs. Sibber, so her mother. You'll see her brother, Mr. Sibber, and then down performing is her husband, who was a violinist at the time. Now if we move on to ballooning and here we've got some absolutely wonderful loans from the National Aerospace Library and it was funny I went there only supposed to get these two final lithographs and they were just so nice and I flashed a dazzling smile and said can we also have these as well he said okay fine. And what I really love about these first two prints is showing the balloon mania and how it's really taken hold. So in 1783, that's when the first balloon goes up in the air. And men have been talking about flying for generations and years and years, but it's the French, the French, who actually do it first, um, the Montgolfier brothers. And then the same year, a woman takes flight, also a French woman. And it's by 1785, the balloon mania is still really, really big but people are kind of trying to find ways to top themselves. And how do you top it? Well, put a woman in a balloon, and that ought to do it. Because women are at the vanguard of the whole craze. It's part of their fashion, as you can see here. So (coughs) balloon in her hair, balloon in her skirts. Although it is popular for men, um, because he's got it in his pantaloons as well. And this item here is a swatch of chintz fabric. So you would... A dressmaker or an upholsterer would take it to a great house and sort of say, would you like your curtains done in the latest fashion of balloonomania?" So balloonomania is constantly finding ways to top themselves. Letitia Ann Sage is determined to be the first English woman to fly. And in May, she attempts it with Lunardi, who is an Italian aeronaut, he's already Flown a balloon by himself in September, and he sort of toasts the Prince Regent as he goes past um, the royal palaces, etc. Um, and Lunardi contacts Sage because she is a famous Western actress, so their combined fame will create more of a spectacle. So they're about to take off in May, however, the balloon will not fly because it's too heavy. And in her memoir, Letitia Anne Sage refers to 200 pounds of human weight, leaving out that she weighs 200 pounds, and it's because of her they can't <laughs> take off. So the flight in May is a bit of a disaster. And later on, um, a different aeronaut attempts to fly, and a Miss Grice is going to be the first woman, English woman to fly. However, again, the balloon is too heavy, so Miss Grice is forced to leave it. And Letitia Ann Sage says, right, I have to be in it. I was nearly picked to the post. So they attempt to fly again in June. And three people are in the balloon. Lenardi, Letitia Ann Sage, and George Biggin. And again, the balloon will not take off. And the three of them are all sort of looking at each other. The elephant in the room, if you'll pardon my pun, is Letitia Ann Sage. She will not move. She is determined to stay there. But George Biggin, the other man, has to stay because he's the financial backer. He's already missed an opportunity to go up in the air. So the Italian aeronaut himself, Nenardi, gets out of the basket. So two people are going up in the air who have never flown before to this huge Georgian crowd. However, the balloon ascends, the, the crowd goes wild. In all the kerfuffle and uh, mania of things taking off, Biggin sees that there is some lacing undone. So he says to Letitia Ann Sage, would you mind bending down and tying up the lace? So she gets onto her knees, ties up the lacing. It's a bit unsteady, so he puts his hands on her shoulder in order to steady her. And the Georgian crowd sees a West End actress on all fours, a young, handsome man behind her. They draw their own conclusions. So unfortunately... (laughs) Letitia Ann Sage, she has gone down in history as allegedly the woman who created the Mile High Club, which is a shame. And that's why we end on this rather cruel satirical print of Letitia Ann Sage up in the air with her skirts ballooned out of her. You see, to justify the ballooning ascent. They, the aeronauts sort of said, no, we are conducting specific scientific experiments, so there's credence to what we're doing. We have no idea how the atmosphere will affect um, humankind, but like I said downstairs, Letitia Ansage Sage has managed to step on the barometer and break it, so all credence is entirely ruined. <laughs> However... In fairness to Letitia Ann Sage, she is the first woman to write an account of her time in the sky, and it's very, a very miraculous piece of writing, and she talks about how when I go out, i shall be as much looked on as if a native of the aerial regions had come down to pay an earthly visit. So let's rehabilitate Letitia Ann Sage and say she did not join the Mile High Club, but she wrote a great memoir about her time in the sky. So now we come to writing. And why might a woman try and disguise her sex when she becomes a writer? And to answer that question at first, I put Mary Wollstonecraft at the forefront of it. When she first wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Men, which was a direct um, answer to Edmund Burke, who wrote quite flowery language in defence of um, Marie Antoinette and her terrible treatment against the revolutionaries in France. And she completely lampoons him and says, you're ignoring the the tyrannical reign of a despotic king and being far too romantic in your notions. And she publishes it um, anonymously. And it sells out in three weeks in every single reviewer reads it and lauds it as this amazing piece of political writing and then in the second edition she publishes it again but her name is revealed and that's when the consensus of praise starts to shift they begin to focus more on the fact that it's a woman writing it and before they were agreeing with her points against burke they say you're too passionate in your writing compared to his reason etc it's sort of an 18th century version of, calm down, dear, which is so unfair, Um, and to really show how her reputation gets lampooned, because she really courts controversy, because she's so anti-oppression and pro-women having education, you know, crazy things like that. Um, Horace Walpole describes her as a hyena in petticoats, which is very, very galling. But Jane Austen would have been aware of Mary Wollstonecraft's writing, and certainly her huge loss of reputation, because after Mary Wollstonecraft dies, her grief-stricken husband, William Godwin, also a political writer, publishes a memoir of her life, and he thinks he's serving her memory well because he's writing in such explicit details about her love affairs, her um, um her uh, illegitimate child, her attempted suicides, and it goes down unbelievably ba- uh, badly and her reputation is pretty much buried until sort of she's reclaimed by second wave and third wave feminists of the 20th century. So Jane Austen would have been aware of all this controversy circulating around Mary Wollstonecraft. And Jane Austen writes anonymously, which is one option for what a woman can do if you want to write. <coughs> However, what's interesting about Jane Austen is she doesn't write by anonymous, she writes by a lady. She's she's making a very deliberate choice. She's putting her books within the female sphere and perhaps reclaiming writing for women. Another option you could do, if you don't want to write anonymously, is to write under a pseudonym. So this is a portrait of Georges Sand, who was, as I said downstairs, a French writer. But it's interesting, George Sand's name. George to us is a very typically male name. However, in French, the French version of Georges has an S at the end of it. So by having George without the S, it's a deliberate sort of neither female or male. It's sort of both, it's neither. But George Sand was a fascinating character and on her father's side has relations to the French kings through an illegitimate line, and on her mother's side is a dancer slash courtesan. And she in her day, when she's very successful, she decides to dress as a man in public. And in the in the French 19th century, you needed a permit be able to do so but she decides i'm not going to get one of those she says it's so much cheaper dressing as a man i'm not going to buy all these skirts befit for my station and she also smokes in public as well which was really not the done thing but to Georges sand she's not making a statement about androgyny per se by going out into society dressed as a man she's given freedoms which are closed off by women. Women can't go about in society unaccompanied by themselves. However, when she's dressed as a man, she can walk through society invisible, which as a writer is really crucial to her, because she wants to be able to observe all the goings around without being accosted or hassled. So, other people who wrote under androgynous pseudonyms are the Brontes. So Curra, Ellis, and Acton, Bell. And here we have a second, third edition, sorry, of Jane Eyre, and she's still publishing under Curra Bell here. And Jane Eyre is wildly successful, and as you'll see on display we've got the first editions of the French and New York editions, so it's hugely, hugely spread. And the Brontes, they don't want to be criticised um, because of their gender. And it's a fair, it's a valid enough concern because when their books first come out, they're really, they're praised and they're very popular, but they're also criticised for being incredibly coarse and unchristian. And one reviewer even says, if we ascribe the book Jane Eyre to a woman at all, we have no alternative but to ascribe it to one who has, for some sufficient reason, long forfeited the society of her own sex. So this reviewer, and early, earlier on in the review, it's, it's very hilarious, um, he sort of says, now I know it can't have been a man who wrote this because a female friend of mine says that a woman put, wouldn't put on such a horrible dress when she's escaping from a burning down building or something like that. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But then he's sort of covering himself by saying, well, if it is a woman, then they've never been in society with women, so it definitely isn't one. So, egg on his face. But, um... (laughs) It's only after the deaths of her beloved sisters that Charlotte really comes out in society and says, yes, we were three sisters. So, in this edition of Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey, she writes her now-famous biographical notice of Ellis and Acton Bell. And in some literary societies in London, they were aware who Charlotte Bronte is, but this is the first official time when it's really acknowledged so it's not just one man it's not three brothers it is three sisters who wrote up in this obscure part of the north of england and wrote with such feeling and passion and to me the writing community of the brontes is just astounding and that's why i love this diary page here and you'll see how tiny it is the brontes famously in their little books wrote absolutely minuscule writing and there's a facsimile copy copy there which has some words which are just impenetrable it's just question mark question mark i don't know what they said Um, but this ink doodle really captures the sense that they're writing together in this community in the dining room table together Um, and i love that you can see the voluminous victorian gowns just depicted in a few ink lines And the Bronte sisters really relied on each other and each other's opinions. They might not always have agreed on it. Um, Charlotte Bronte famously didn't think much of Heathcliff, thought he was a bit too violent and unchristian, but they needed each other's um, thoughts. And the next object we have, also on loan from the Bronte parsonage, is written by Charlotte Bronte. And I absolutely love it, because she's writing to her publisher, George Smith, and she's saying to him... Oh, Curabel, um has not been writing, he's been amusing himself with the swallowing of drugs and etc. So he, she's basically saying, I'm too sick to write, but I love that she's referring to Carabel as a separate person. But um, connecting it back to the diary, I, I've sort of researched around the context of this letter. And Emily has been dead at this point for two years. And Charlotte is feeling very low because Emily's dog has literally just died. So one more connection to her has been lost. So she's really suffering from a languid, low spirits here. And she's missing that writerly community that she grew up with. And it's, it's very sad. And she writes to George Smith, I've written to a friend um, and asking, asking her to come and take care of me. And this is Ellen Nussie, her her great friend. Then we end the exhibition on this rather remarkable letter. It is written from the poet laureate of the time, Robert Salvey. So Charlotte Bronte, as a young woman, well before her publication success, sends him some of her poems and essentially says, well, what do you think, are they they any good? And he writes back. As you can see, it's a very long and thoughtful letter. He has some positive things to say about her writings, but this is when the famous line of, "Literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not to be." So, I mean, it's it's he. I think he's being kind in a way. He's sort of saying, "Manage your expectations." However, he was very very wrong, and just a show of hands. Who here, no judgment from me, who here had heard of Robert Southey? And could you name a poem of his? So, like I said, no judgment. He's part of the romantics. He's sort of running around with the um, Coleridge and Keats and Wordsworth. He's part of that ilk. But Charlotte Bronte, who wished to be forever known, has received her wish, whereas Robert Southey has somewhat fallen into obscurity.
1: So after the exhibition, I really, really want to do some research and reading around George Sand and Mm -hmm. do like a mini season on her because after that and kind of during lockdown, I've been reading Flaneurs by Lauren Elkin and there's a chapter on George Sand in that which is really fascinating about being in Paris and about protest and I attended my first protest during a lockdown, so (laughs) (laughs) come at me, I don't know, Um, but... It, it wasn't just George Sand, right? It was every single person covered by the ex- exhibition really, like, piqued my interest and I wanted to know more. I wish I could go back, but I can't. There wasn't a single person in there who just wasn't completely fascinating. And I think that's a really good sign of, like, a well-curated exhibition, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I cut a lot of this out. Sorry, listeners. But <laughs> there were lots and lots of little interactive bits to that. Um, exhibition, which I thought were really fascinating, just like really holding people's attention. You might hear a couple little clips um, after the credits. But um, yeah, I think Cleo just did such a great job. And I totally agree with you regarding Georges Sand, because um, I did a, a lot of reading on her when I was doing some work on Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And Barrett Browning was completely obsessed. Yeah, didn't she have a Sand.
1: painting of George Sand, like in a bedroom?
0: Uh, you're actually thinking about Emily Dickinson having a painting of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. They all the Browning. Is, they but all she may have, have had one of George Sand as well. Because
1: yeah. Barrett Browning also had, like, she had those paintings of the dudes, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, just everyone she did. Just
0: hanging paintings of people. Everyone was like, you know, rock stars, all the writers and poets, just, you know, you put them all on your walls. I mean, we should, we should still do that. Why don't we do that now?
1: Pete, if you want to like print out one of the pictures from our Instagram of me and Lauren and hang it up in your house and then take a picture of that and let us know. Great. Great. Bit weird, but great. (laughs)
0: So if you want to learn more about the women featured in the exhibition, then head on over to org, where the entire exhibition has been made available online. And if you want to see photos from Hannah's visit, then you can find them on our social media. And Hannah, what is social media? Social media
1: is a great way to interact with museum exhibitions, even during a global pandemic.
0: Oh, that sounds great
1: (laughs) you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our facebook (laughs) discussion and you can join our discussion group by searching for bonnets at dawn on facebook and now you can find us on youtube as well by searching austin versus bronte bonnets at dawn and you'll find a short video about the exhibition and ways to support Chawton House during the lockdown. So what is it YouTubers say? Hit that subscribe button. Yeah. (laughs) Leave a comment. Let us know what you think in the comments. (laughs) I don't know. I always wanted to say that. That's it.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Right, so roll
1: this, and this is going to decide your fate in the year 1793. So you're at war with France and you are in the Navy. You personally are at war with France. Go. Two. Alright, lift the flap.
2: Definitely gonna be good. Oh.
1: You're attacked you have to by read pirates it. and forced to join their crew. Justice awaits you at the end of a hangman's nose. I got shot in the leg. Yeah. You know women used to dress up as men in the fourteenth century as well. Yeah. In the army, and there were like these gangs of women that dressed up as knights and they went to tournaments and competed. Yeah, yeah didn't, didn't know that.
2: That. No, exactly, little factoid.